Good evening. Good evening. It's good to see all of you. Thank you, brave and hearty souls, for coming out tonight. Uh, and I can tell you the big, there were two big decisions that were made here First, uh, to make this possible. First, Larry said, let's do it. Uh, the students are here. We ought to go. And the second was somebody said, let's get hot chocolate. Uh, and I'm not sure which was more important to get you all here, but the hot chocolate is still being served, uh, and you're welcome to go to it. Uh, we're going to have a, I, I think we're really privileged tonight to have Larry return to uh, the forum. Uh, he has been here on past occasions and always brought a intellectual uh, strengthening to the forum. He's always talked about things I didn't understand very well, uh, but had, has been uh, wonderfully engaging for students and has been, I think, for a number of years. You, I, uh, it, it's hard in the time we have to recount Larry's bio uh, in full. I, won't, I will not do it justice but I think that some of you should know and eat your hearts out, uh, that uh, he came here uh, in to study at MIT and got a Bachelor of Science degree. He came to the university, to Harvard, to get his doctorate. And a year after getting his doctorate at the age of 28, uh, he was tenured as a full professor at this university. That's one of the youngest anybody has ever done that. I think it remains a standard, but it said to everybody, this is, a, this is a young man who's going to go places, and indeed that's what happened. He's had a remarkable life. Uh, his, uh, his public service, I think, alone has earned him a place in American history. Uh, after serving here for a number of years, let me just quickly go over 1991, went to the World Bank, Vice President of Development Economics, Chief Economist, 1993, became Treasury Undersecretary. 1999, became Secretary of the Treasury under, sec under President Clinton. 2001, returned here to Harvard to become President, uh, where he uh, brought this university a long way in its internationalization. He had an expanded commitment to the sciences and, uh, and improved efforts to attract the strongest students. And I will tell you that during his time he was President, his strongest base of support came from students around the university. They loved him. He, he brought a breath of fresh air and a, and a, a sense of vision and, a, and an aggressive sense of what, what Harvard could become that really attracted a widespread following. Uh, but Larry went on from there in 19, uh, in, in 2009, he returned to government and uh, in the, in the Obama White House as the director of the National Economic uh, Council. Um, he has gone on from there to do all sorts of things. Two of his uncles are Nobel laureates in economics, uh, and I could go on and on, but his greatest strength today is his wife, uh, uh, Eliza New, who is a professor of English here at the university. Um, he has become, uh, since leaving uh, government, has become deeply involved in nonprofits. We happen to serve on a board together for Teach for America. I think we joined the same day. Um, but he's, he's involved now in all sorts of nonprofits. He's really committed himself to social entrepreneurship community. I remember years ago he said, Harvard ought to be to the social entrepreneurship movement what, Har what Stanford is to Silicon Valley. Uh, so he's very firmly in the corner of a lot of you who want to bring social change uh, to this country and globally. So, Larry, thank you. And, and by the way, now he's a, I need to add, Charles Elliott, prof university professor. Uh, and also, he's a, a director 
with John Haig of the Center for Business and Government here at Harvard. That's something, you know, given all everything he's done, the fact that he would take that and try to run a center, I think speaks everything you need to know about his commitment to service. He could have done anything he wanted, uh, but he's come back here to Harvard to teach. Uh, and, and my judgment uh, over time, just as we have looked to Henry Kissinger for years, uh, as sort of the wise man of international affairs, geopolitics, I think for a long, long time, the, this country and the world are going to look to Larry Summers uh, as the wise man of economics. So we're delighted to have you here tonight, Larry. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, let's go right to the chase. David, thank yes. you very, very much yes, for that uh, really very generous introduction. And I have to tell you all about <coughs> the first time I met David Gergen. The, I don't know if David remembers this. I, remember I suspect what? it made a <laughs> larger impression on me at the time than it did on you. I had, as a 28-year-old uh, on my way to Harvard, uh, joined Marty Feldstein at the Council of Economic Advisors in a technical uh, position. It was not a political position. I hasten to we, point we out. We thought you were brothers. I <laughs> hasten to point out in the Reagan administration. <coughs> David was the communications director or some such uh, for President Reagan. And the president was going to give an economics speech in which he was going to explain that inflation was coming down as a consequence of his wonderful policies and good things would happen to the economy. And so there needed to be documentation for this proposition. And it was poor David's task to work with the Council of Economic Advisors and its staff to elicit that documentation. First, we suggested a couple of regression analyses. <laughs> and David resisted those regression analyses. Then we suggested a couple of bar graphs. And David resisted those <laughs> bar graphs. And then David suggested, why don't we just have a piston, why don't we just have a line like this and then have the line go down? <laughs> we said, that's okay, but if we're gonna say that it's going down like this, we have to say that the numbers were computed with a moving average filter. And a slightly, exa a slightly exasperated David Gergen explained to me, he said, Larry, the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, is not going to use the term moving average filter <laughs> in his five-minute address to uh, the nation. It was an important contributor to my <laughs> political education, and I've been learning from David Gergen ever since. <laughs> and we, we have been friends since then, some 30 years, but I, will, I want to tell you the end of that story. We, if, if, just one brief detour. So uh, the president was, gave a speech on television, and, and, and the speech on economics does <laughs> can be rather dry. So the whole notion, I came up with the idea, was president in the middle of the speech, you're gonna go, we're going to go over and have you go to an easel and draw a line showing what will happen to the deficits if the Congress fails to enact this program. And little did we know, of course, what would happen to the deficits if Congress did enact this program. But um, uh, but in any event, so the notion was, Mr. President, you've got to get up to your desk and walk over there and draw this line, keep reading your teleprompter, come back, sit down, and we'll go on. And he says, fine, that's easy. I said, fine. But, but Mr. President, would you mind coming over and practicing? We just want to make sure everything's going to be okay. So he said, fine. He came over about 20 minutes to 9. It was a 9 o'clock speech. We went through the rehearsal. It was fine. He got into the speech. He got up, walked over to the graph, started to draw the line. And we'd made one mistake. We had forgotten to put the cap back on this red felt tip pen that he was drawing the line with. 
And so he said, here's what's going to happen to the deficit. He took this thing, and no line. All we got was a little screech going across, <laughs> going across this tablet, or this easel. Uh, and I was sitting there about 25 feet away behind the cameras, uh, updating my resume. And, uh, the, uh, <laughs> and our TV guy who had worked for me, who was, had more foresight than I did, had brought a second red felt-tip pen. And so, as soon as this happened, he hit the floor and started crawling across the Oval Office toward the cameras and toward the desk. Well, the Secret Service getting cardiac arrest. It's not in the playbook. White House aide crawls at the president. And the president looking down there saying, who's this jackass crawling across my floor? <laughs> <laughs> so the guy, Mark Tronick, climbs around there, crawls around the desk, comes up to Reagan's left leg, holds up a second red felt tip pen. And Reagan got this little twinkle in his eye, as he often did, and he said, he looked at the audience and he said, I think I'll try my pen again. And he took this line, he drew, he drew this beautiful line. And I was thinking, I worked for Nixon, who was as clumsy as hell. He couldn't, he couldn't get his fingers around a dial telephone. Um, and uh, you know, if Ed, he'd been president, the speech would have been called off. We'd have been thrown out on our tushes on the Rose Garden. And the planes would have been over Cambodia in the morning. So, <laughs> so Larry and I have both have deep origins. And uh, we're glad to be with you tonight. When we will, we'll, we'll now go to a loftier level. Uh, or maybe we won't, because I, you, you've been writing about something. You gave a speech at the IMF that got everybody's attention. You've been writing in the Financial Times about it, about secular stagnation and where we seem to find ourselves, how you see it, and what the ways out might be. First of all, what is secular stagnation? What are you looking at? And before we get to what the remedies might be. Here's the disturbing fact. <clears throat> We did the right things, and we avoided a depression in 2009, and that is hugely important and satisfying. But if you look at economic growth since the trough in 2009, it's slower than the potential of the American economy to grow given population and given technological change. If you look at the fraction of adults in America who are working, it's barely increased since the summer of 2009. So we really haven't had a satisfactory uh, recovery. Then look back before the crisis, from 2003 to <coughs> early 2007, we had the mother of all housing bubbles. We had massive erosion of credit standards. We had what many regard as way too easy fiscal and monetary policy. So you would have thought the economy would overheat massively. It didn't. It grew about adequately. But if we hadn't had a credit bubble, if we hadn't had massive housing inflation, housing wealth creation, it probably would have grown inadequately. Before that, we had a recession in 2001 from which we had a painfully slow recovery. Before that, we had the internet bubble. So it's been a long time since the economy grew in a sound way, near full employment, in an environment that was financially sustainable and without bubbles. And that has to be a cause for concern. An interpretation, a hypothesis, certainly not a proven fact, but a hypothesis I think has to be that the interest rate at which 
savings and investment balance and balance of full employment is lower than it used to be and maybe close to zero or even at some moments negative. And in that context, it's going to be difficult to achieve sustained rapid growth with financially sustainable conditions. And that's the kind of condition that um, the Harvard economist Alvin Hansen feared the US was approaching before the Second World War. And if you look at the data on the economy in 1939 and 40, if there hadn't been rearmament, Roosevelt would have left office a failed president replaced by a Republican because he'd had eight years and he had not gotten us out of depressed uh, economic conditions. In the event we had the Second World War and the idea of secular stagnation went by the wayside. But something like it, a situation where we need extraordinarily low interest rates that may be problematic in other ways, or something else to get the economy growing satisfactorily, that may be our situation uh, in this period. And if so, it's going to require us to think somewhat differently than has, I think, been the traditional way of thinking about the business cycle. Traditionally, we've supposed that you have a downturn, and then there's a natural set of processes that lead the economy to recover. Five years with essentially no growth beyond what normal demography and technology would suggest after the worst downturn since the Second World War has to make you, in my view, worry about those self self-equilibrating processes. And that's what's meant by the idea of secular stagnation. And, and what fundamentally, you, you've written that there are basically three options that people might be, or should examine here. There, I think as a matter of logic, there's sort of three ways of responding to the set of circumstances I just described. One view, which seems to me to be pessimal, seems to me to be the worst, is to simply do nothing and recognize that eventually you'll get back to full employment and full capacity. Because if the economy is soft for long enough, there won't be much capital investment. People will drop out of the workforce. And eventually, the level of supply will fall back down to the level of demand. And so you can call that full employment. But it's a rather depressed concept of uh, full employment achieved only by people withdrawing from the labor force. A second strategy, which in some ways is the strategy we've been uh, pursuing, is, well, if the real interest rate is zero, needs to be zero, or the real interest rate needs to be negative one, or the real interest rate needs to be negative two, let's be as creative as possible about finding ways to get the interest rate down to such a low uh, level. That's the kind of thinking that gets you to quantitative easing, that gets you to what's called forward uh, guidance, that gets you to suggestions that we should try to have a higher inflation rate so we can have a lower uh, real, uh, real interest rate. And that's probably better than doing nothing. I'm almost sure it's better than doing nothing. But it's fairly problematic. Just how productive are the investments going to be that people wouldn't make with a, with a nominal interest rate of zero, 
but they would make with an even lower uh, interest rate. Isn't an environment where interest rates are so low going to be an investment environment where people take all kinds of risks uh, that run the risk of uh, financial bubbles? And just how stimulative will those lower interest rates be? Better strategy than no strategy, but I don't think a great strategy. I think the preferred approach has to be what would be called in a macroeconomics class pushing the IS curve to the right and uh, would uh, be more popularly called raising the level of demand in the economy at any given interest rate. There are a number of ways to do that. I think the most obviously desirable in the American context today is an increase in uh, public investment. Look at uh, Kennedy Airport. Is there any place you can fly to abroad from Kennedy Airport where it feels like you're going from the first world to the third world instead of from the third world to uh, <coughs> the uh, first world? And I would say to you that if a moment when the interest rate is below 3% for the long term in a currency we print ourselves, at a moment when the construction unemployment rate is in double digits is not the moment to fix Kennedy Airport. I don't know when that moment will ever come. And so that, it seems to me, is an example, is in a way the tip of a very large iceberg of public investment that we should surely be engaged in and aren't. So that's part of it. Another part of it is uh, finding ways to uh, open up uh, private uh, investment to reduce barriers of various kinds, particularly regulatory barriers, uh, to uh, private investment. Look, I've read that um, one of the major bridges, I think the Oakland Bay Bridge, outside of San Francisco, it took a year and a quarter to build the bridge and it's taken seven years to accomplish an exit ramp. I don't know how many of you have occasion to drive or <laughs> walk across the bridge connecting our campus with the business school. But I defy you to explain why, in a world of 21st century technology, traffic should have been screwed up for over 12 months to accomplish a repair, not a widening, mind you, to accomplish a repair of, uh, that, uh, of, that, of that bridge. So some of it is about, right, some of it's about deciding to engage in public investment. Some of it is about regulation and competence in the way government functions that um, enables investment, both public and private, uh, to take place uh, more rapidly. Some of it is about moving beyond a fetish with the size of the paper uh, deficit. Uh, I do worry as much as anybody else does about the world my children are going to inherit. But as between issuing debt at a 0% interest rate that might get passed on to them and deferring maintenance, and deferring maintenance on the nation's infrastructure, underinvesting in the nation's uh, schools, allowing our contributions to basic science and technology to degrade, 
those seem to me to be passing on much greater burdens uh, to my children. So I think that public investment has a great deal to do with it. I also think the right kinds of tax and regulatory reforms to stimulate uh, private investment have a great deal uh, to do with addressing these concerns. You make a compelling case about investment in infrastructure, doing more for science. I'm wondering if, in retrospect, the way the stimulus program uh, of the president in his first term uh, gave ammunition to those who oppose infrastructure. We heard all the talk about shovel-ready pro projects, and we would actually create a lot of, we would invest in a lot of infrastructure. But most Americans had a hard time seeing it. Uh, and as you know, the stimulus program, after that, you couldn't get another stimulus program done. You, you could head off the danger of a depression, but you couldn't really get enough, another stimulus program done. You know, it's more in your line of expertise as a political person than mine <coughs> as an economist to assess all the aspects of uh, that uh, debate. I think in retrospect, if we had had sustained stimulus over a longer time period, planned for and committed at the beginning, that would have been better. Mm -hmm. But if you had said that <coughs> instead of having, the president proposed um, about an $850 billion stimulus program, in the end making the appropriate kinds of adjustments, he got about 80% of what he asked for in a two-year program. If he had asked for a three-year program or a five-year program, he would have gotten about the same amount of money, maybe a slightly larger amount of money, and that would have meant much less money in the first year and much less money in the second year. And it was that money in the first year that was necessary to turn around an economy that was in free fall. So while I can say in various ways what kind of fiscal stimulus would in retrospect have been better, basically one that was bigger and longer. I'm not sure that there was an alternative political strategy the president could have pursued that would have um, resulted in getting uh, such, a, uh, such a program uh, passed. Uh, the reality was that there was a huge concern both in both parties, but including a fair number of people in the president's party, about sticker shock. And that if you had allowed anything about this stimulus to exceed a trillion dollars, uh, the sticker shock would have been such that it would have passed either not at all or much more slowly than it did at a time when uh, the economy was in, uh, was, was, in, was in collapse. So I'm not sure what the alternative political strategy uh, would have been. Uh, I think there'd be many economists who would say that it should have been more narrowly focused on stimulating demand and that things like renewable, en things like renewable energy and the promotion of broadband and information technology for medical records should have been left for another day to have been done more slowly. But I think from a political perspective, a program that was organized only around demand would in many ways have been more problematic, uh, not, uh, not less problematic. 
So I would say in retrospect, as I said at the time, that uh, the that the right thing to do, I used to say at the time, uh, when people said how much fiscal stimulus, couldn't we do too much fiscal stimulus, I would say yes and I could lose too much weight, but the risks of my becoming anorexic are small and the risks of our overdoing fiscal stimulus <laughs> are, uh, are small. So I think the challenges were really political and I guess I think uh, they were pretty severe. Yeah. Um, as you know, at Davos and at World Economic Forum this year, uh, there was a good deal of talk about the impact that robots and artificial intelligence and other new technologies are going to have upon the employment prospects in the future. There's a new book out now that's like a machine age from these two uh, economists at uh, MIT, which has stimulated some of this conversation. Some of it's very positive about how technologies will enrich life, but there was an awful lot, was an awful lot of fear at Davos over the long term that the secular stagnation you were talking about actually would get worse, not better? I think it's very hard. I, I think <coughs> it is uh, very, very hard to know. But I think uh, serenity is misplaced. Um, when I was an undergraduate at MIT, there was a lot of discussion of automation and would automation do away with jobs? Would automation mean that people would only be working a 25-hour week? If they would only be working a 25-hour week, would that be uh, good? And at the time, Bob Solo was a major protagonist in the debate and there were various other non-economists who were protagonists in the debate. And Bob Solo sort of said, well look, yeah, maybe everybody will get more productive, but if everybody gets more productive, they'll be richer and they'll have to spend more money, and if they spend more, then there'll be more, somebody will have to make whatever they're spending their money on, so it all has to work out okay, so you shouldn't worry about technology, and you're kind of an idiot like the Luddites if you're worried about all the jobs being destroyed, was kind of what Bob Solo said, and the other guys kind of didn't really 100% understand, and they just kind of said, well, it was gonna take away all the jobs, and it's gonna be terrible, and that was sort of the debate, and I kind of left the thing uh, believe in that Bob Solo was really smart and he had it figured out and the other guys were fools. And in some ways I think that's right, but in other ways it did occur to me, it has occurred to me in recent years that when we were having that debate, 19 out of 20 men in the United States who were between 25 and 54 were working. And right now it's more like 13 men out of 20. Uh, who are uh, 13 or 14 men uh, out of uh, 20 uh, who, are, uh, who are working. And so maybe this phenomenon of more and more people dropping out of the labor force and lower wages is kind of exactly what you'd expect to see if the automation fears were coming, uh, were coming true. And I guess what I'm struck by is that when we had seismic change associated with the industrial era, the coming of the industrial era and the waning of the agricultural uh, era, in the fullness of it all, it was a fantastic and a positive thing but the adjustments were very difficult to the point where a century later, 
we're still putting a lot of money into farm programs. And it took the Bismarcks, the Gladstones, and the Teddy Roosevelts to craft a set of public policies that made this be positive for a large enough number of the people in the society that it all worked out for the best. And I wonder if we're not going to need to see something of that kind, and I'm not sure we yet see it, with respect to all the things uh, that are coming uh, from uh, technology. You know, the, the book before the second uh, machine age, a very good book, was written in uh, 2004 by Dick Murnane here at Harvard and Frank Levy at MIT, and they looked very carefully at computers and what computers could do and what computers could not do and assess the impact of technology in various ways. And one of their conclusions was that there was a great deal that information technology really wasn't going to be able to do. And a major example they used was that they said it is not foreseeable that a computer will be able to make a turn, a left turn, into ongoing traffic <coughs> anytime soon. Well, it was only six years after they wrote that sentence that Google um, was able to uh, do uh, just that. You know, in Japan, where an aging population has more and more people living alone, there's a quite viable market in automated pets. And people get solace uh, from those automated pets. There are actually quite remarkable computer programs that do what psychiatrists do. Tell me about it. That must have been very hard. How <laughs> did it make you? How did it make you feel? <laughs> really? <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that. And people actually get solace from these things. And so, the potential of technology to augment or substitute for a great deal of what we do. Um, is something that I think we have to look ahead to. And I, I think that the issues of secular stagnation and tapering and quantitative easing and uh, cyclical expansion and all of, the, all of that stuff, that, those are the economic issues that are going to define this decade. But I think the issues around technology are going to define either this generation uh, or uh, this century. Look, here's, here's a fact, if you don't remember many facts uh, that I say. Um, manufacturing employment in China is today lower than it was in 1990. Hmm. Now, you can't really imagine any place having more competitive success in manufacturing than China has had hmm. over the last generation. But productivity growth has been so rapid that there are fewer people in Chinese manufacturing than there were in 1990. So if China is ending with fewer people in manufacturing than it had 25 years ago, the idea that we are somehow going to rebuild our economy by having a growing fraction of our population in manufacturing is ludicrous. It's not going to happen. We may have a manufacturing renaissance. But if we have a manufacturing renaissance, it's going to be because if you use robots, you might as well produce near your customers and near your R&D. 
anything that's labor intensive isn't going to be manufacturing in the United States, and increasingly, less and less manufacturing anywhere is uh, going to uh, be uh, labor intensive. And so I think we are going to have to think about all of this in new ways. We're going to have to think much more about services. And I think the question is going to be, is can we find ways to have a service economy be truly circular in which each of us perform services and others perform services and I perform services for you and you perform services for me? Or is a service economy going to be a Downton Abbey economy where those who less own the land than own the ideas and own the best ideas are going to have all the wealth and they're going to have people who are specialists in cleaning the shallow end of their swimming pool and different people who are experts in, in, in cleaning the deep end of uh, their swimming pool. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that's going to be a rather less attractive democracy uh, to live in. And that, it seems to me, is the really challenging uh, set of issues uh, for, uh, for the long term. So having an Israeli, a Gladstone, <coughs> a TR, to shape those public policies, it seems to me those kind of questions are right. Israeli was a Israeli was a conservative. Right. Uh, Gladstone. I, I was, there was a little bit of bias. I'm sorry, toward, A little bit of bias Bismarck. towards the progressives. Yeah, yeah, the way yeah, I, I said it, David. <laughs> I can understand why you would choose well, to I miss know. that as a former Ronald Reagan advisor. <laughs> Bismarck was sort of, uh, you know, he had his conservative policies there. The, uh, but let me ask you uh, uh, about uh, this: if those kind of issues shaping those policies seem to be right in the wheelhouse of the Kennedy School. What should we be doing to organize ourselves to think about this, to come up with the, the policies that, because I don't, I don't see a set of, I don't see any consensus building toward anything about how we're going to deal with this. Look, I think the, it's much, if, if there are great ideas to address these issues that haven't been thought of. The history of thought suggests, frankly, David, that they're more likely to be thought of by people whose age reflects the average age in the audience mm -hmm. than whose age reflects the average age of the two of us on this stage. I agree with that. And so I, I think so. <laughs> so I think the first I think the first thing is uh, <coughs> a big complicated world out there desperately looking for ideas uh, with uh, with respect uh, respect to these kinds of to these kinds of uh, questions I think the second uh, thing uh, to say is that <coughs> I don't think an American a standard American liberal arts education you know I don't honestly think the Kennedy School does much to fix this although it's probably harder for the Kennedy School to fix this teaches people roughly anything about technology. It doesn't teach people much about science, and there isn't much expectation of learning anything about science. But if they learn anything about science, it's uh, the theory of evolution and, the theory of, and uh, the theory of relativity and the theory of this and the theory of that. It's never about technology and engineering and the like. And I think increasingly, 
being an educated citizen and thinking about um, the uh, thinking uh, thinking about the most uh, important social problems that we face is going to require more of an understanding of technology than a standard education gives to the 96% of us who are uh, not going to uh, become uh, engineers. I guess the third thing I would say, and it reflects a general bias that I've had as I've sort of moved back and, moved back and forth between university and government, is there's sort of two kinds of public policy problems. There's one kind which, in which I would include social security, fixing social security, and I would include uh, peace between the Israelis and Palestinians, where basically it's pretty clear what the answer is. And what's extremely difficult is to find the politics of the way to get there. And there is a second kind of problem in which I think um, what are all the people whose marginal product is um, a third of the median, which makes it a tenth of the average, um, going to do when technology causes there to be a lot of people whose productivity is a tenth of the average, where even if you could be the czar and there were no political problems, it's not that hard to, to do. It's always seemed to me that when I'm in government, I should try to work mostly on the first set of problems. And when I'm in a university, I should try to think mostly about the second hmm. Uh, hmm. set of problems. And it seems to me that, in general, if we here oriented ourselves somewhat more to guessing what problems were going to loom large on the horizon in 2025, and somewhat less on what were the major problems, issues that Congress was debating uh, today, that it might enable us uh, to enhance our contribution. Hmm. I want to ask you one more question, unrelated, then we're going to go to the floor. I've got several more I'd like to get to, but we also want to get to you. There, in the academic circles, there has been a movement now by, I guess, the American Studies Association to boycott scholars from Israel. What do you think the appropriate response of the universities should be toward that? Outright condemnation, but they should get the reasons for the outright condemnation correct. Yes, academic boycotts are normally a terrible thing, and that's what everybody has said. I'm not sure they're always a terrible thing. Looking back, I kind of wish Harvard had done more to boycott Hitler's universities in the 1930s rather than to cooperate with Hitler's uh, universities. So I think the ground for rejecting this movement is not so much what has been widely said, which is what's an academic boycott and every academic boycott is terrible. I think instead it's three other things. One, scholarly associations should not become agents of political action. Academic freedom and the idea of the ivory tower rests on a kind of compact with society that it's hugely important that there be academic freedom. 
but when those engaged in scholarship seek to become, using their prestige as scholars, political actors in ways that are unrelated to any academic expertise they have, that it seems to me is problematic. So it seems to me manifestly inappropriate for the American Economic Association to have an opinion about abortion and for the American Studies Association to have an opinion about uh, Israel. Second, it seems to me this particular action is morally close to indefensible. Why only Israel? Saudi Arabia, they do head tours. Plenty of places in the Middle East, they do all kinds of terrible things. There are genocides underway in this world. Why is the only place worthy of a boycott Israel. Now there may be some possible answers, although the answer that was given by the president of the American Studies Association, which was, and I quote, you have to start somewhere, um, was singularly unpersuasive. And so it did bring to mind uh, what I had said of a similar kind of effort to force divestiture of stocks uh, some years ago. It may not be anti-Semitic in its intent but choosing only the world's only Jewish state for a boycott does seem to me to be anti-Semitic uh, in its effect. And the third uh, reason why I think it should be condemned is what it was that was their agenda. Their agenda, if read carefully, was not merely that Israel take a much more dovish view in the current negotiation with the Palestinians. It was that Israel accept a right of return of every descendant of everyone who lived in the territory that is today Israel in 1948. Something that every observer on both sides recognized would mean the end of the state of Israel in its current form. And so it seems to me that the condemnation it deserved was for the outrage of the demand, for the singling out of Israel, and for the politicization of a scholarly association. And I might just say in that regard that while I'm not, on, I'm not entirely clear on what precisely the facts are, I would hope that any university that was a so-called institutional member of the American Studies Association uh, would withdraw from the American uh, Studies Institution, as a few have, but many have not. Question. There are, there are microphones here uh, on this floor, and there's one here, and there's one here. It's in uh, Kennedy School of Fashion. Uh, one question per customer, uh, and please keep it short, and remember that every question ends with a question mark. So introduce yourself, sir, and uh, off we go. I'm Ronan McGovern from Mechanical Engineering at MIT. In relation to a growth in inequality, what do you think is the most promising creative idea for wealth distribution in the future? I don't, know how, I don't know how creative it is, and I don't think it's, 
I don't think it's fully effective, but uh, much more effort uh, to achieve progressive taxation, less through the raising of tax rates than through the elimination of a whole set of shelters, exclusions, and, and exemptions that permit very large fractions of the income that accrues to the most fortunate to either be taxed at very low rates or to escape tax or to escape taxation at all. And you would move toward more property taxes as opposed to more income taxes? Or certainly towards the effective taxation of capital uh, certainly towards the effective taxation of uh, capital income and I would want to look hard at property and uh, at issues around property and wealth. Please sir. Uh, thank you both very much. Uh, my name is Wyatt Smith. I'm a student at the Business School. And prior to that, I worked for Future for America in, in Birmingham, Alabama, and taught history. Um, I, uh, my question is about education reform. And I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on how we recruit, retain, attract, and develop a workforce of teachers in this country um, that help drive us towards some of the goals you spoke about for STEM education. Look, I think that uh, in general in the education reform area, both the right and the left are right. I think the right is correct that you need more accountability, more merit, more uh, merit pay, and more measures. And I think it stands to reason that if you have any sector where you pay low, where there are no consequences to doing either a very good job or a very bad job, that it will not be a magnet for talent. And so I think resources are a very important part of education reform. At the same, uh, so I think that accountability, measurement, merit pay, all of that choice. is a very, more choices, more choices for parents, less tenure, uh, less job security uh, for uh, teachers is I think a very important part of the agenda. I think the other part of the agenda is you have to uh, be willing to put resources into areas where uh, you uh, want to get uh, good, uh, good outcomes. I remember when my kids were young, we had a lot of friends and everybody had, everybody had uh, kids. And I sort of noticed after a few years that there were some people who it just seemed like, you know, they had some kind of childcare arrangement. And I noticed at one point that there were some people where it seemed like every six months they were having some kind of problem with their child care. And some people who seemed to, life seemed to manage and they weren't always having crises. And it was sort of puzzling. And then after a while, then I got a bright idea, being an economist. I would ask people who had a crisis, um, what were they paying, what did they think the right amount to pay for child care was? And sure enough, the people who paid more tended not to have crises, and the people who tended to pay a lot less tended to have crises. And so I think what you pay um, when you're hiring uh, affects the quality of the people you get. And I think we are going to have to invest more in, uh, in uh, getting people uh, to become teachers. Much of that is a matter of monetary compensation. Some of that is a matter of uh, various aspects of uh, respect and 
regarding uh, teaching as a valued and honored profession, which is done to a much greater extent uh, with respect to primary and secondary uh, school teaching in a number of other countries uh, than is done uh, in the United States. So I think it's both part. I think it's both parts that have to go together. Good. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm Amna, a sophomore at the college. Um, so you are the primary or one of the primary commissioners for Global Health 2035, for which those of you who don't know is a group of people that looked at the issue of health investment. And so in that report, they claim that within a generation we'll have record or we could have record low maternal infectious and child death rates um, universally and globally. So these goals, I feel like I've heard them before from the United Nations with the Millennium Development Goals. So I was wondering how this would be any different. First of all, um, I would say that global health is an area where the world is doing fantastically well. If you look at the child death rate in lower in lower income low and middle income countries, it has fallen by nearly fifty percent over uh, the last generation. If you look at life expectancy in the developed in uh, the developing world over the last 50 years, it has increased by about three months every year for 50 years. So no small part of achieving uh, that goal is simply continuing the very positive trends that have taken place. But yes, we argue uh, that we can, that the world can do better. Primarily, it's a matter of taking advantage of the fact that the developing world has, why they call them emerging markets now, has actually grown very strongly in economic terms over the last 25 years. And so our estimate of the cost of achieving that agenda is that it represents less than 1% of the new resources that a higher GDP uh, will, make, uh, will make available. You know, very generally, it is hugely important to be dissatisfied and to think that the world's not doing enough and to think that there are big problems. But it's also important to recognize that if you don't look every day or every week or every month or every year, but you step back and look over some longer intervals, remarkable, remarkable and progressive things happen. And if you look at the experience of a typical young girl born on planet Earth in 2014, in 1984, they are profoundly, profoundly different in terms of the, in terms of the prospects of survival, in terms of the prospects of learning uh, to read, in terms of the prospects of avoiding a life of tedium uh, and toil. And there is every reason to think that if we make wise choices, that those trends conti can continue. And I was proud to lead the commission uh, you referred to because I think the kind of analysis that we do here at the Kennedy School and the kind of analysis that we did in that report and that we commissioned uh, for that report is uh, very instructive as to 
how to uh, avoid um, these kinds of uh, problems, how to achieve better and better and better uh, outcomes. And we will never be in the right place if we're not dissatisfied with the status quo, but we will also never be in the right place if we don't recognize and can't look back on very substantial progress. Larry, do you give much uh, credit in this, in this progress to the inspirational healthcare leaders like Paul Farmer and philanthropists like Bill Gates? Well, uh, yes. Um, I will say that, uh, I will, since you all but invited me to say it, I, I will say that this, uh, the genesis for the Lancet Commission was uh, that it was the 20th anniversary of a book, of an article, of a book, basically, that the World Bank had produced as its 1993 uh, World Development Report that um, I had been involved in commissioning when I was the chief economist. And I think that report was stimulating and interesting in many ways, but the most important thing that report did was it was the report that, by his own testimony, got Bill Gates interested in uh, the subject of global health. And what got him interested in it was precisely the fact that it wasn't just about caring. You actually could count and analyze and measure and drive and determine and get better outcomes uh, in, uh, in that way. Look, I think it's a ton has to do with the progress of science, which has been, you know, it was true in the 1990s that uh, there was more money invested each year by the world pharmaceutical industry in pet disease than in tropical disease. That is no longer true, and it's the result of philanthropy, it's the result of pressure, it's the result of the efforts of the kind uh, that, uh, you, uh, that you describe. I think, though, and I've done work in and out of the development area for a long time, I think the, the efforts of those of us in outside the developing world, the philanthropic efforts, the advice-giving efforts, I think they make an enormous uh, difference. But I think one always needs to recognize that in any country, its destiny is most shaped by the people who live there and the choices they make. So I would give um, what's happened in the developing world primary credit, but I would be the first to acknowledge an enormous catalyst from things like Paul Farmer's moral energy, from things like Bill Gates's uh, force of personality and analysis, along with the resources he's provided. Thank you. Please, sir. Uh, thank you for being here, Professor Summers and Professor Gergen. Uh, my name is David Clifton. I'm a freshman at the college. To what extent do you think that uh, cuts to social welfare programs such as food stamps will have long-term effects on the economy, and are these cuts economically justifiable? I think we have slashed a number of basic government programs in ways that we will come to regret, uh, come to regret very much as a country. I think if we want to maintain political support for programs like food stamps, it's appropriate to be careful to avoid fraud in those programs, to make sure that the people who are getting those programs 
are people who need uh, the support. But it seems to me that our errors in recent years have been very much on the side of overcutting rather than on, on underinvesting rather than uh, in the reverse direction. Thank you for being here. Uh, Jason Lee, Harvard Divinity and Harvard Business. Um, your point about manufacturing uh, rang true with me. I've been trying to reiterate that point over and over again, um, yet I often hear the president since 2009 cite a manufacturing renaissance as both a means of economic revival and a means of solving um, income inequality. And it seems your comments directly contradict that. Why do you think the president and members of his party and others continue to tout this policy, which seems to be a fool's errand? <laughs> you know, I, I think that the president should, president, uh, should probably, uh, is probably best, best positioned uh, to speak uh, to speak for him to speak for himself. Look, I think you. I think the task of leadership is complicated. Um, anybody with um, anybody with eyes to see it had to recognize through most of the 20th century that the number of people who were going to be able to work on farms was shrinking, and that that was basically a consequence of a really good thing, that agricultural productivity was going up and up and up. But what would you advise a president to say? Oh, the agricultural economy isn't really going to be very relevant anymore. All agriculture is becoming smaller. You guys really ought to move off the agricultural economy, move off the farms. Or would you advise a president to say, we're building a new economy and agriculture as an essential part and there's this whole set of agricultural innovations that are very important and we should work to promote agricultural exports in uh, various ways. I think David would probably counsel a president, certainly a president who is still in his first term, um, very much on the side of adopting the second rhetorical posture. And in a way, that's what's going on as people talk about manufacturing. It's much easier to sit here in a classroom doing analysis and acknowledge the failure of a sector or acknowledge that a sector is going to shrink than it is to live with its shrinkage on a day-by-day -day basis. I do think uh, that more attention to jobs and opportunities outside of uh, manufacturing would probably serve us well uh, as an economy. I mean, here's something I pushed in uh, when I was in, uh, it's not a huge thing, but it's a, a fair-sized uh, thing. Uh, I had the occasion to meet with uh, the CEO of a large hotel chain. And he told me that of his nine-person management committee, six, had started working behind a hotel desk and had never gone to college. And what that said to me was that if you wanted to think about industries that provided large numbers of jobs, that provided large opportunities, tourism was such an industry. And that we have immense resources that make us attractive as a place for tourism. 
we have historically been much less coordinated as a country in promoting the idea of visiting America than Britain is of promoting visiting Britain or Italy is of visiting uh, Italy. And so there was substantial scope for job creation and job promotion of a kind that would provide ladders of opportunity through the promotion of that sector. And I think we have, I think we have uh, fetishized manufacturing uh, perhaps more uh, than uh, we should. On the other hand, some of this goes with geographic concentration. And, you know, I think it's probably going to be a long time before Detroit's going to be a magnet of tourism. And so I think it's understandable if leaders in Michigan um, and Ohio ha see themselves as having a great stake in the future of America's manufacturing economy. <laughs> please, we'll try to go as far as we can, please. Hi, my name is uh, Ian Van Wine. I'm a freshman at Harvard College. Um, and my question is with regards to this idea of employment in an increasingly uh, technology-oriented economy. Um, I'll say, first of all, that I agree with this uh, premise that you know, more people, we need to have a higher percentage of adults working. But I also consider the twofold role of technology, one of which, it, well, one role it seems to me is that it should, of course, increase productivity. The other role, though, is that it should give us more leisure time. So my question is really the following. Is it really necessary that we see an economy in which everyone is working a full work week or engaging in sort of this you know, reciprocal service economy? Or would it be better to see something more like, I think, Keynes's 15-hour work week, but also have people simply be compensated more in a way that's commensurate with higher productivity? You know, it's really hard to say. Um, <coughs> for the first time, I think, in human history, it's the case in contemporary America, and I think in much of the industrialized world, that people with higher wages work more hours than people with lower, lower wages. For most of history, it was the case that the people who had low wages had to work more hours in order to be able to survive. There's an idea that was a big thing when I studied freshman economics that I'll bet is not taught when you studied freshman economics, which was the backward bending supply curve of labor. And the idea was that as wages rise, people work less and less past a certain point because they're richer and they choose to purchase leisure. That's not the way it's working in contemporary America. And so the fact that as wages rise, people choose to work more hours <coughs> is something that is at least complicating of the Keynes view that uh, we can make everybody happier by being rich and asking people to do a 15-hour um, review. I have not, this would be a good project for somebody, it's a good, good thing for somebody uh, to, uh, to look at. It is widely said, it is widely asserted that people who retire, um, their health deteriorates much more rapidly after they retire than before. Now there's a big problem of causality, which is when your health starts to deteriorate, that's the moment you start to retire. But modern social science would have ways of addressing that. And I don't know whether it's true that people who retire for reasons that aren't due to their ill health, but are due to conditions, find that their quality of life in various ways deteriorates much more rapidly. 
I wouldn't be surprised if it was true. And if it, and if it is true, it's a little bit worrisome with respect to this vision that we can make it all okay with everybody working a 20-hour uh, uh, a, a week. Uh, I've had a certain amount of opportunity in life to observe the children of the extremely wealthy who have been fortunate at a certain level in being bequeathed enough that they don't have to work in order to live well, and indeed that what they can earn by working well will not make a substantial percentage change in uh, their living standards. And it is not my observation that as a group, they are especially happy or fulfilled or contented. And so I think the concept of a society where there's large amounts of non-work at least is problematic. And my reaction to the Keynes essay that everybody should read, uh, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, you can find it on the net, um, is that it is probably romantic and over-optimistic uh, in its assumption that if everybody worked a 15-hour week, everybody like Keynes could enjoy themselves going to poetry readings and uh, concerts and art museums for the remainder of the time. I'm not sure that would necessarily um, be how it would work out uh, for all the members of our society. There's one question <coughs> we, we really should ask you before we close, uh, and that is Harvard's future. How ambitious, how risk-taking should this university be in embracing the future? I think, uh, I think it's true, it's usually true in life um, for individuals, um, for organizations, and for countries that the biggest mistakes you make are the opportunities that you miss. And the danger of institutions that develop great traditions is that they are so concerned with not with doing something that undermines that tradition in some way or that damages the reputation in some way that they are not prepared to boldly uh, innovate. You know, I think a story that every American institution should contemplate is the story of the Kodak uh, company. The first consulting I ever did for a private sector institution as a very young professor was I would every few months with a group of other economics professors who were older than I was, would go to Rochester and would give a briefing on economic conditions to the senior management team of Kodak and talk about things they were interested in talking about. And at the time, Kodak was among the 15 largest companies in uh, the United States. At the time, Kodak was really the core of the city of Rochester, a city of several hundred thousand people 
that really provided a wonderful middle-class lifestyle for the residents, of, albeit in a cold climate, for the residents of uh, that city. And Kodak had research labs that were really outstanding by the character of industrial, industrial America that found, that did actually very important and pioneering work in digital photography. But it really wasn't the Kodak way. It didn't, it was threatening to the existing order at Kodak. And so Kodak didn't really ever move. They said, oh, it's flaky. Oh, it doesn't work that well. Oh, it's going to be a special thing for hobbyists. Oh, it's for geeks. And they just kind of always marginalized it and never got very serious about it. And today, Kodak is bankrupt. Today, Rochester is a vastly diminished city. And today, they're not really there and important anymore. And it was because they didn't want to risk, they didn't want to take a risk for a great possibility. And so it seems to me that uh, the challenge for great institutions is to stay young, bold, and uh, new. And I had a principle when I was president, I was some some areas I was successful in implementing it, probably more than I wasn't. I felt that the university had a tendency to do things. The university's rule was we'll do something if no one objects too much to it. And so the veto was promiscuously distributed. And I felt the right principle was we should do something if some people thought it was extremely important and positive, even if other people thought it was goofy and useless. Or as I put it with a mathematical bent, we should, we should do the union of things people are wildly enthusiastic about rather than the intersection of things no one passionately, uh, oppo <laughs> no one, uh, passionately opposes. And I guess I think that's the right uh, philosophy. I said in my inaugural speech when I became uh, president, I actually considered not saying it because I thought it was a bit of a cliche. And I was quite surprised when it actually was rather noticed and commented on by quite a number of people unfavorably. I said we will attempt bold experiments. Sometimes we will fail. Indeed, if we never do anything that fails, that will be the biggest failure of all because it will mean that we had failed to join the adventure of our times. And so as I look at uh, today's universities in general and Harvard, which in a sense by being number one, has more, is under more pressure to conserve, um, I think the greatest risk is that they won't uh, take uh, enough uh, chances. That's why I think Harvard could not overinvest in uh, massive online uh, internet-based uh, courses. That's why 
I have a soft spot for any kind of bold innovation, whether it's my guess that it's a good one uh, or not. Nations pursuing broad, broad policies have to be careful and prudent since they're big, since they have vast consequences. But universities producing ideas in new ways, no idea should be too uh, radical, no experiment should be uh, too flaky, no innovation should be rejected uh, because it's too innovative. That, it seems to me, uh, should be uh, the watchword, and it seems to me should be the pressure that a university's faculty or university's alumni, and especially the university's young students, bring on it. One last question. Yes, ma'am. Hello, my name's Amanda. I'm a joint degree student here at the Kennedy School in HBS, and my question is about how the U.S. should think about competitiveness, especially now that we're in the world of bricks and mints mm. and whichever new catchphrase you want to pick of four countries that are really pushing the envelope, um, specifically in two areas. One is on immigration of high-skilled labor, and the second is in the energy industry, where the U.S. still has restrictions on exporting crude oil and other things like that. That was really very artfully done to fit within David's rule about you could only ask one question. <laughs> really, he really did that extraordinarily <laughs> skillfully. She's one of our best students. Extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinarily skillfully, I thought, to just take the three things you touched on. So competitiveness, I think you'd be careful with that idea when you talk about countries, and here's why. If you're talking about Coca-Cola and Pepsi, <coughs> if Coke sells it, Pepsi doesn't. If Pepsi sells it, Coke doesn't. If Pepsi sells more, they still don't buy Coke. If Coke sells more, they still don't buy Pepsi. It's a zero-sum game. If Coke wins, Pepsi loses, and vice versa. If you talk about the United States and China or the United States and Japan, we are competitors. We're both trying to sell to Germany, but we're also each other's largest customers. And so we're not really rooting for them to fail in the same sense. And so the sports metaphor that it's like competition where there can only be one winner and loser, I think the competitiveness thing obscures as much as it reveals when you're talking about uh, countries. With respect to uh, immigration, uh, look, I think that's easy. Um, there are going to be first-rate entrepreneurs from all over the world who are going to catalyze great new businesses and who are going to employ large numbers of people in those businesses. And they will do it wherever they can. In many, in many, many cases, they'd like it to be here. But if it can't be here, they will do it someplace else. And if we somehow think we're helping our economy by keeping those people out, we are crazy. And so I hope we will pass immigration reform that addresses the set of issues around high-skilled uh, immigrants, where it seems to me the merits are very, very clear. I think it's about as close to a Pareto improvement uh, as is available in practical economic policy. I think the other parts of immigration are much more complicated uh, to sort out what to do. Look, uh, crude, oil, uh, crude oil exports, I don't see the argument against. Uh, the United States has been part of efforts for 50 years to tell developing countries, whenever Mozambique decides 
that it wants to hold down the price of cashew nuts and not allow unprocessed cashew nuts to be uh, exported uh, in order to build up its nut processing capacity. Whenever they do that, we're against it. And it seems to me that it's the, it would be the height of hypocrisy uh, for us uh, to take a different position when it's our oil uh, resources. And as I understand it, and I think I do understand uh, this, there are very large, oil's not one thing. And it's just much more efficient for us to export some crude oil of a kind that doesn't work well in our refineries and import oils that do work well in our refineries than it is to live with an export ban. And not only that, but if you actually look at it hard, what you see is that, uh, this is another case where elementary economics is very illuminating. The marginal oil that's going into gasoline in Boston or in Chicago or in Los Angeles is coming from the rest of the world. And so if you hold down the price of crude oil in the United States by not allowing it to be exported, you're not producing lower gasoline prices at the pump for you and me. You're producing more profits for the refiners who get to buy it at an artificially low price that's below the world price and get to sell it at a world price of refined products. So I think the merits that, you know, how fast we should get there is a different issue. But I think the merits that we should be going towards allowing with all the appropriate environmental protections, the export of both crude oil and natural gas are very, very clear. I know I speak for many of us here on the Kennedy School faculty to say I'm, we're so glad that you had an a chance while you were at Harvard to spend an evening with Larry Summers. Why don't you join me in thanking him for coming here tonight. Thank you. Thank you.